0: and Wine, a weekly conversation with practitioners, providers, patients, and healers about complex reproductive medicine and women's health challenges, the value of an integrative approach to these challenges, many of the women's health topics you're already thinking about but uncomfortable talking about, and my personal favorite, wine. I'm your host, Dr. Lorena White, an integrative reproductive medicine and women's health provider, licensed acupuncturist, clinical herbalist, and a former labor support doula, in the Washington, D.C. metro area. My goal is to bring women's health-specific evidence and expertise to the forefront of daily women's health and wellness news through informative conversations. If you have ideas, questions, and specific topics that you would like us to cover in future podcast episodes, please leave them in the comment section or send us an email at info To learn more about our team's approach to care, visit our website at www.larenawhite.com. As you enjoy the podcast, conversations, and wine time, remember to follow the podcast, leave a five-star rating, and tap on the bell to make sure you never miss an episode. Let us know what is your favorite topic, who has been your favorite guest, and who would you like to hear from on the next pod. Most importantly, share the podcast and your favorite episode with a friend or colleague. Lastly, remember that this podcast is not designed to be a substitute or bona fide relationship with a licensed or certified healthcare professional. Coming up, I talk with Kath Berry about the complexity of menopause and the role trauma plays in the smooth passage from perimenopause through menopause, the importance of a nuanced, tailored, and personalized treatment approach to health, wellness, and healing, and lastly, the engagement of a clinician or provider in the shepherding of a person. Through the therapeutic encounter. Let's join the conversation. Traditional Chinese medicine is thousands of years old and has changed little over the centuries. Its basic concept is that vital force of life, Chi surges throughout the body. Any imbalance to qi can cause disease and illness, and this imbalance is most commonly thought to be caused by an alteration in the opposite yet complementary forces that make up the qi, the yin, and the yang. Today, our focus is on an often overlooked and misunderstood part of the woman's life cycle, menopause. Kath, thank you for joining us, and please introduce yourself.
1: Thank you, Lorena, and what a privilege to be on your podcast show today. My name's Kath Berry. I'm an Australian acupuncturist living in Ibiza, a small island off the coast of Spain. And prior to this, I was living in London, so I've been out of the country now for 15 years, and I've picked up a bit of an international accent (laughs) in that time, so you'll have to excuse if my accent sounds a bit muddled. But uh, my background is in Chinese medicine. I started studying in 1995 at the University of Technology in Sydney, and at that time, it was the most incredible time to be a student because the internet had just arrived and it was transforming how we studied and how we consumed information. And of course, as you mentioned, Chinese medicine being thousands of years old, there was this absolute thirst for information. And at that time, there weren't that many textbooks available. What we've really seen now in the last 30 years or so is this prolification of specializing in Chinese medicine before It was a a system of medicine that we understood and then would apply to these different subsets of specialties. And now what we're seeing is we've evolved so much that there's this incredible opportunity to really dive deep into different subject areas. And so the one that I'm most interested in today at this point in my career is in menopause and women's aging.
0: Wonderful. So please share with us a little bit about how you became interested in the history, the philosophy and the medicine components of TCM.
1: Thank you. Well, I was really privileged in high school to be part of an experimental program in Australia teaching young students about Western philosophy. And so I'd studied philosophy as a high school subject for end of year for two years. And when we'd finished high school and I was looking at what university options are available, I was really interested in medicine. And when I opened up the university guidebook to look at what courses are available, acupuncture was one of the first that I read about. And it had been advertised as a combination of history, philosophy and medicine. Wow. And I thought, this this sounds incredible. This And, and what was really wonderful is on the opening day, there was a lecture by the university professor at the time who had said it was really important to understand what the course the four years full time would be about. And so this introductory lecture was really focused on the Tao and this concept of there being a path, of the way. And as a little 18-year-old, I thought, this is my path. Yeah. This is my calling. And it really resonated. And, of course, what was wonderful was being part of this new evolution of students that came into the university studying Chinese medicine, this very old and ancient art of medicine. And at the same time as technology taking off and being able to start to explore what was going on in other countries and other research that was becoming available. That in my at the beginning of my course, I would sit down in the library and study through these old dusty textbooks. <laughs> right. and, and by the time I finished, we were sort of do, doing Google searches. Well, it was pre- Google, but we're doing searches to find um, databases of contents. So I've always been really interested in in data exploration and understanding, you know, really the bigger picture of medicine. Yeah,
0: and I think integration and integrative health. Hair- care is that bigger picture and i think so often we're missing the point or we're not we're getting up to it but we're not getting that full integrative approach to care and it's almost like the integrative approach is you know outside of the norm where it needs to be you know the actual norm and
1: and one, one of the things i've loved seeing is i've loved seeing that chinese medicine or traditionally Asian medicine was yeah. so far on the outer you know when it first started 25 30 years right. ago and now just watching it just just Come so much closer in parallel and, and now as we're seeing exactly as you say Lorena this fusion this yeah. idea of integrative medicine and, and for listeners today to understand integrative medicine being this fusion of both eastern and traditional I traditional East Asian as well as Western medicine right. the, the best of the best right You're looking at how yeah how, to, how to, the synergy of
0: where those two meet. You're already one of my favorites because I say the word synergy almost every single day. <laughs> and so when you say that, it's like, yes, it's the actual getting the best of both worlds for the betterment of the health, wellness and healing of the individual. And so you mentioned um, speaking of, you know, evidence based integration, what does that mean and how do you apply it to your clientele?
1: So evidence-based, this is an interesting concept and it's really looking at what are the scientists saying. Mm -hmm. And and this is where I should um, intercept and say that I went on, after my undergraduate degree, I went on to do a postgraduate degree in addiction medicine looking at acupuncture for drug and alcohol addiction. And part of the clinical trial that we were running, it was fascinating to sit in the seat of a clinician. Mm-hmm. And the role of a clinician is to take care of somebody and make sure that you do everything within your power that they get best possible outcomes. Right. And the role of a scientist is to measure why are those outcomes occurring? And and what I found is sitting between, it was virtually like wearing two hats. Yeah. Uh, my clinical hat was really making sure that you it, it was uh, magnifying all of the parts of treatment and care that would pr- result in the patient getting the best possible result. Right. As a scientist, you're trying to eliminate the variables which might be considered sort of confounding, mm-hmm. as in muddling up the research. Right. So, so this this is where we sit, I guess, as a challenge as evidence based really is what scientists are saying around the treatments that we're doing, and and the best body of knowledge that we have is is a huge volume of people doing all the same treatments, which of course is what traditional Chinese and East Asian medicine is, right. that the results really are spoken for in the general population, the community. You know, people listening today will know that this works mm-hmm. because of their own experiences or those of the people that they've spoken with.
0: Yeah, and I think that is the evidence versus the scalable, repeatable, we do this the same way at the same time using that as the only gauge for evidence-based. And we're going to touch on that a little bit later, but I want to go back to, you know, how you began. You began using acupuncture um, and one of the modalities used, you know, to restore and regain balance as a treatment for drug and alcohol addiction. Talk to us more about this experience.
1: It was, again, really fascinating. And, and I had gone in, I sort of, you know, having had as my entire career from my in, my whole adult life right. in my sort of late teens studying Chinese medicine and what was going on socially around me. And then, and then looking at, at the time, there was a, a protocol called the NADA, ear acupuncture protocol mm-hmm. coming out of New York, which was really popular and we we're seeing some great results. And so, you know, the idea of setting up, a, uh, what we did in Australia was set up a clinical trial. Where the university students, the final year students would go into a hospital rehab program and deliver acupuncture once a week to the inpatients there. And what was wonderful is if you can imagine a group of people who for a very long time had been fairly dejected by the medical system. Yeah. That you know, people that were you know anyone that ends up in a one month residential rehab program has sort of really come to a, a fairly cat- catastrophic part of their drug using career, right. and so uh, and this particular program was what was called a court diversion program, and that was people were had been had been picked up by the judicial system and they were given a choice of either going into jail or into a treatment program if they were suitable. Right. So we were dealing with a really complex group of people. And what was wonderful is going in with the final year acupuncture students and the students got to see really complex medical conditions and these patients got care. And, And by that, I mean, they got listened to. Yeah. And they had students saying things like, how are you feeling? Or, you know, how are you sleeping? How's your digestion? All these wonderful tailored things, which we know traditional Chinese East Asian medicine does. Right. That ac- acupuncturists are trained to go through a fairly rigorous a- uh, assessment. Yeah, that assessment is a form of healing. Mm-hmm. You know, being given an opportunity to talk about, you know, all the different nuances that that make up our lives and our living. Right. So that that was a, it was a fascinating program to be part of, and I, I just loved seeing the students form this relationship, with the patients, and then these patients themselves responding so well to this treatment. And and I mentioned you know, we were talking about the evidence base where it becomes difficult to is to try and disentangle Mm. is it because that the students were being kind and caring is it because that they were lying down and being treated well is it because we played nice music and it was a lovely friday afternoon event there were all these what we would call sort of the confounding factors to a wonderful treatment experience and as a clinician, we're trying to enhance those factors. Mm-hmm. As a scientist, you're trying to eliminate or minimise those. <laughs> right. So it's it's that sort of push and pull between what happens in real life versus what happens perhaps in a you know laboratory trial, you know, or analytical setting.
0: Right. And I think again, to me, it just by definition, we're talking about confounding. We're talking about supporting you know factors, and they're in essence going against each other. But why not, you know, bringing those together that is part of that therapeutic component that isn't necessarily measurable in numbers, but it's definitely measurable in outcomes. So speak to us about the definition of a therapeutic alliance, and it's important to the healing component of health and wellness.
1: So the therapeutic alliance, and you imagine the, the word, it, it really is this magic that happens between a patient and a practitioner yes. when there's good rapport yes and and that is where that the, there's this agreement or contract that's made between both that everybody is working for the best interest of the patient's best outcomes or right. best care and so the therapeutic alliance is again it, it's one of these things which forms where the patient and the practitioner are working together mm-hmm. to make sure that there's the best possible outcome right. and the reason why this becomes really critical more for complementary and alternative medicine or people in traditional chinese east asian medicine is this is what we do exceptionally well yeah and this is where doctors are often criticized in australia i remember reading is that the majority something like 90 percent of complaints against gps mm-hmm. is not because of their clinical treatment but because of the way they were communicating with their patients Yeah. so what that really tells us is that that therapeutic alliance that communication that relationship and that rapport is part of the therapy yes and of course we know this because of our speaking therapies cognitive behavioral therapy and hypnosis and counseling any form of talking therapy it is really based on that therapeutic alliance and what's lovely around interventions like acupuncture and chinese herbal medicine is we've got this fabulous commun- this fabulous combination it's a it's a process of talking of educating of listening of responding and then intervening and yeah. that is either through the needles or through the herbs or through the education and upskilling somebody in changes that they can make for example diet therapy yeah. which is massively underutilized but an incredible incredible part of menopause treatment
0: yeah and we're i feel like we're leading up to menopause but yeah, there's just so many things that we've been talking about up to this point um, as you've moved through your respective life cycles, you have, your focus has changed. You started off from drug and alcohol addiction to fertility challenges and now menopause. So as you have evolved, talk about these pivots and how you made these shifts. It's it's been wonderful. I, I
1: think it's also because I in my nature I'm, I see, see myself as a scientist, mm-hmm. so I love the idea of getting a topic and then really drilling deep down into that. Right. And so exactly that's how it started off a drug and alcohol, and I was really fat, fascinated by addiction medicine, and went on to complete the masters of science addictions. You know through the clinical trial. And then as I sort of got older and then started looking at, you know, in my early thirties became really interested, I was actually really fascinated by the childbirth medicine and looking mm-hmm. at pain and pain reception. And of course that moves into into fertility. And you know, really, really fascinated by working with some specialists in in how acupuncture is the most incredible, incredible asset for labour and childbirth. Yeah. And again, you know, fairly under underutilized. You know, it's it's I think it's becoming more popular, but certainly there's a lot there's a lot of room for you know, having acupuncturists or midwives performing acupuncture within the midwifery departments or obstetrics and gynaecology. Yeah. So, and and now I'm sort of in my mid forties now, and and just sort of watching as as I sort of evolve and thinking, goodness, it's it's been menopause. One of the other things, of course, as as you would know, being a fertility specialist, is that we have seen in the last twenty years this incredible shift and in change with endocrine endocrinology and endocrine medicine. Yeah. And so, as part of that, thinking, okay, if if We now understand, you know, the female gynecology in a way we didn't even 15 years ago, you know, and that I find really exciting when we start looking at moving from fertility and into menopause as well. I mean, this is a wonderful question for you because, of course, you're with your specialist expertise, you know, just seeing the changes that you would have seen in your career and through your center.
0: Absolutely. And I think that brings... Like a so such a nice kind of intersection in terms of the work that we do, because today many women are getting pregnant and are trying to conceive at much later times in life, and so what used to be you know age thirty five was that you know advanced maternal age number. I'm seeing women who are like you know over well over forty moving into what would previously be considered a perimenopausal stage, and they still trying to conceive, trying to build their families because of, you know, how our lives have evolved over time. So I love your unique approach about, you know, automatically using and treating preventatively um, menopause at age 40 simultaneously. And I like that aspect of, you know, nurturing menopause, um, that, you know, preventive component as a simultaneous treatment for fertility challenges. So can you speak to that and how this addresses not only the life cycle, but also the different components for ameliorating and almost diminishing um, menopausal s- syndrome symptoms.
1: Indeed. And, and you've hit it on the head, Lorena, with the word preventative. And I would urge anybody listening today that the, it really needs to start now. And what I mean by that is that often you know, we see fertility um, and around, you know, as you said, the mid-30s, mm-hmm. that the menopause really needs to be thought as as starting in the 40s menopause care really needs to start at 40 right and you know just in terms of the definition of menopause menopause technically is one year without a menstrual period so it's a bit it's a little bit of a difficult um definition in itself because it's problematic that it occurs 12 months after the event has actually taken place. Right. So there's there's a little bit of sloppiness and sometimes in the dates around that happens. But what it means is women will often say that they're fully in menopause at age 51, mm-hmm. which means from the age of 50 they got their last menstrual period. And the final menstrual period is the marker of of the 12 months before being diagnosed or right. the definition of menopause. But what that really means is if we, if we use the if the, we use the numbers 50 to 51 as being around the average for menopause. Then, then what we look at as it being a 10-year process. Yeah. Um, w- one of the most extraordinary results of the research that we've conducted over the last four years is looking at the role of uh, of exercise, particularly exercise and diet. Um, but the most striking thing of all was really the importance of a tailored program. Yeah. And of course, you know, you would see with your fertility clients that come in, is that there isn't one size fits all.
0: Never. and this is
1: where we, we really shine, I think, in in our complementary alternative approach or in you know traditional Chinese East Asian medicine is designed to be very much a tailored program. Right. And this really sort of hands over to the clinicians in charge. To say this is this is why it's really important that you find a great practitioner that you're going to be with for life. Yeah, you know, just and, and you know just that regularity of treatment, the idea of being told what is suitable food to be eating for your particular constitution, and, and it's been interesting. You know, in researching for the book, I often have women say to me, "Well, you know, tell me the secret. What what foods <laughs> should I be eating? You know, what right. what should I be doing or not doing, and what." And, and the biggest answer to that is really it's just about the individual person. Yeah. You know, in in Western in the Western framework, we'll look at something like an avocado or a banana and say that they're good or bad foods. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in Chinese East Asian medicine, we look at the person's constitution yes. as to whether an avocado or, or a banana or any different food substance is good for the person. So it's yes. less about the substance yes. and more about the consumer. And right. that's where that's where seeing, you know, tailored treatments and having clinicians involved in care is absolutely essential for a really smooth transition through menopause.
0: Wow. Engaged clinicians and tailored approaches. It's its like almost like you're reading my mind. You're reading my mind. So but before we delve further into this topic and we're getting ready to like really delve in deep, let's talk about hormone replacement therapy many women immediately begin some form of hormone therapy to combat or ameliorate their menopausal syndrome symptoms. What is your take on HRT?
1: So this is a bit of a, it's this is a big question, mm-hmm. and I'll answer that in a few ways. Okay. Um, the interesting thing, so H- HRT is hormone replacement therapy, and it's now often you'll hear the words menopause hormone treatment mm-hmm. MHT. So that just to say that those two those two expressions are used interchangeably for right. anybody listening today. That just that that's the same. I think it's a little bit of a rebrand of HRT. Right. MHT. <laughs> M- 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 H- right.
0: It's, like, um, it's um, a it's a facelift, uh-huh.
1: <laughs> it, it is. It's sort of because because you know, and, and there's a little bit of a backstory to that in two thousand. Two, there was a Women's Institute study which came out to say that that uh, HRT was very problematic and there was high risk of many other chronic conditions. Right. And what's happened since then is that particular research study has been pulled apart, and that the evidence for that was fairly weak. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there's a lot of misinformation is probably the best expression. And one of the things that I'm seeing is there seems to be almost like two camps, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of women that are jumping on MHT really quickly. Right. As a, you know, but there's also a whole bunch of people that are withholding, thinking it's terrible and that they shouldn't. So it's, it's trying to find that sweet spot between what a woman can be doing herself with the care of a clinician you know, in these tailored programs. But really you know, the, the idea is to find, do everything within someone's power to use diet, exercise, breathing, sleep, sex is a great form of medicine yes so ha- having all these different you're having a really really composite program right. in place and then looking at the symptoms of, and, and then if the symptoms become to a point where they are becoming problematic that's when seeing a prescribing doctor might be really beneficial right but it's it's again there are so many uh aspects of hormonal change and imbalance that can be addressed through things like acupuncture herbal medicine diet and lifestyle choices and that's what we're really encouraging women is you know the the purpose really of the book and the research we've done is to give women the best possible information to make really great choices and of course mht might be one of those choices but just to make sure that they're aware that there's lots of other options before moving to that as the first step
0: yeah and i think this kind of ties back to what we were just previously talking about is that preventative approach and even as one is trying to conceive, that is still simultaneously, whether that aspect, you know, goes through to full fruition, you're still preparing yourself for the inevitable, which is eventually menopause. And you're already preparing yourself because you're strengthening your, you know, your whole system in preparation for a, a life cycle change. And as you're preparing, you know, even as you're preparing to conceive, you're preparing for that lifestyle change and it's all a part of the entire life cycle but also the necessary preparation to really address some deficiencies or excess wherever they lie but it's that still that whole person approach to care and hormone replacement therapy is not going to be designed for everyone and it's also not you know the worst thing in the world but it's also not the answer to everything and being able to incorporate that as a possibility is so important in having an engaged clinician and being able to look at all the different options is so important to that therapeutic process. So your life has taken you from Australia to London and now Ibiza, the party capital, I think of the world and surfing was the conduit. So what, what did you find? Talk to us about, you know, your surfing aspirations and how did that lead you to discover the major grievance that you notice most often from your clientele?
1: Indeed. Well, I, I, again, being Australian, we're sort of we're all born in, into. You know, a majority of people love water sports. I'm a very keen swimmer and right. love being surrounded by the water. So, it, it did, I left Australia in 2007 to go on a one year surfing trip around the world, and I was very fortunate to surf through Indonesia, or different parts of the United States, right. South and Central America and then sort of ended up in london with a sort of a backpack with a surfboard no money and so i decided to uh, to try and get some work in london and then and then move on from there to my plans to tra- to surf and travel to europe right. i was so fortunate when i first arrived in london it was around the time of the british acupuncture council mm-hmm. having their annual conference and so i went along to the, to the sort of this acupuncture gathering and i had um it was, oh, I was so celebrity star struck because <laughs> there was Giovanni Macioccio and Peter Deadman and yeah. all these people, Julian Scott, all these people that I'd only ever heard about right. from the, you know. Textbooks. Tens of thousands kilometers away <laughs> right. well, in Australia, right. and so so I sort of felt it was sort of like being in like acupuncture Candyland. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the people I've name dropped to anybody who's not an acupuncturist listening today, these are the sort of founders of Chinese medicine. Yeah, they're in the kings West, and you know, queens. Yeah, definitely kings, so. yeah, that's <laughs> like the kings and queens. And they and they had you know Chinese medicine itself has really only sort of been in our Western country, culture so since the 1970s. Okay. So it's sort of you know 40 to 50 years old. It's really fairly young yeah. as a profession in you know, this like, this concept we're talking about integrative medicine so you know for, for me sort of being in this uh, immersed in these people and so i i was very fortunate to start working with the publishing company the journal of chinese medicine in in london and and i was involved in running education programs bringing guest guest speakers from around the world right. to do talks in london and then so when i moved to spain I, I was really fortunate to maintain great ties with these people and set up online training with all these wonderful experts um, in, in their leadership roles. So, mm-hmm. so this is you know back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, before webinars had really taken off. Right. And my real interest was bringing these experts to my colleagues in Australia, thinking, wow, the technology I'd mentioned. You know, I was so excited by the internet and so right. excited by technology. And, of course, today's podcast, I mean, how wonderful that people from all over the world can learn from Dr Lorena White you know it's this incredible experience to be able to broadcast into people's homes or cars or offices so you know, again, we're, we today are celebrating the benefits of that technology, right. and of course, I'm sitting on this little tiny island off the coast of Spain. I'm floating. I always I say to people, I feel like I'm living on a cruise ship. Ah. You know, it's this tiny island. Yeah. Our, our resting population is about a hundred thousand people, wow. and in the summertime, that swells to three to five million.
0: Oh my god! So we we
1: really <laughs> are this sort of mecca of the boating community, mm-hmm. the clubbing, the drugs and the whole, everything, <laughs> right. everything comes, everyone comes to Ibiza at some stage. Yeah. So one of the things, you know, I mentioned the clubs and the drugs and that is a big part of the island culture here and your question about the grievance that I was seeing from my patients. I've run a very small practice here mm-hmm. on the island and I about five years ago started noticing I, I was seeing a lot of women in their mid-40s or in their sort of perimenopause or going into menopause and they were coming in and saying to me things like, you know, I've, I went out last night and, I, you know, I, I drank and took cocaine and, and I'm really suffering. I'm really suffering the effects of, a, of lifestyle, you know, of things that used to bring me pleasure. Right. And so sex sex and drugs were basically <laughs> their biggest complaint. Right. I think, you know, the, so lost interest in sex. So I, I heard so many times the expression dead from the waist down. Mm. That was alarming. This, this Word for word, dead from the waist down. Wow. And the, and then the second one is that the recovery from alcohol and other drugs was really really slow. That it was sort of it, it, disproportionate to the fun that women were having you know, right. So previously going clubbing and drinking and drugs, and it all being part of this fun lifestyle. And yeah. realizing that they weren't in a, uh, I guess in an, a, a chemical endocrinological p- position to be able to withstand that anymore. Right. So so at that time I started looking into. I was really interested in, in you know, having come from a drug and alcohol background really interested in in what is the effect of cocaine and menopause what are we seeing with hallucinogens how does menopause being affected by cannabis and alcohol right. and all these other other drugs and so that was really where my exploration started and came up completely stumped there's really not much there's really not much research in that particular area right. at all and then I segued into looking at Chinese medicine and saying okay what can we offer these women what where is the this body of knowledge right. that I can draw on and at the time, it didn't exist. Yeah, it was really quite. It was quite extraordinary, particularly because I had been following the fertility medicine movement, mm-hmm. and and you know again, you know things like the Abdomonia Center at the forefront of being able to offer integrative care for fertility. Right. I mean, it's phenomenal to think that places like your center operate. Yeah. Because Thank again, you. you know, when I when I started twenty five years ago, it was we were sort of so on the fringe. It wasn't. It, you know, we wouldn't have imagined so quickly. Right having such a being at the forefront so quickly and i and so really i would love to see menopause centers in the same way or you know know, menopause menopause being treated in the same way this absolute you know as you say with your team you've got this you know incredible network of people that all come together to offer specialized care I'm thinking if we we've done that so well in fertility, yeah, you know, we're really we're seeing the results. We're seeing women being happy. We're seeing, as you've said, you know, getting these successful pregnancies much later than what was once even considered possible. Right. So there therefore, that's really a positive message to women to say that this is. This these hubs these centers are really where the best possible care takes place.
0: Oh, I love that! I love that! I want to have you to broadcast that aspect all across everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, because that's truly how we feel. Um, this we are the you know, epicenters of truly whole person you know care, and that approach is irreplaceable. And it, while it hasn't taken you know root all over the place, you know those who have you know embodied it and taken it in and really use it in their approach to health wellness and healing that is the evidence and that's what keeps us you know coming back and going to work every day because we're seeing the results and so as you kind of continue to have these interactions tell us about the master class on menopause that sprouted from all these different uh, anecdotal stories and these conversations that you were having with your clientele
1: Again, as I mentioned, I was so fortunate. Can you imagine sitting on this tiny island and thinking, hang on a minute, I need to learn this. Mm-hmm. You know, Where should I go? And I had sort of on my Rolodex these experts right. who I'd met in London 10 years previous. So I sort of started contacting them one by one and said, listen, I'm really keen. I'm keen to learn about menopause. And I'm, I, I can't be the only acupuncturist in the world wanting to find out more about this subject. Right. So you know, you know, and I, I approached all these different experts. There were 10 experts. Who I approached for running webinars and, and part of this masterclass to really sort of cherry pick and, and extract from them the, you know, the, the their their guides, their sort of their advice, their mentoring, their clinical experience. And these, again, as mentioned, the people who, who'd set up the colleges, they've written the textbooks, they've done the clinical trials. You know, I really made a point of getting people who I felt were the the leaders, who would have the right answers. Right. And so we, we did this in two thousand and eighteen, and we you know it was over over the course of twelve months. I interviewed all all of the different clinicians and had their expertise compiled into this twenty four hours of content. And then off the back of that, a colleague and I sat down one day and we said, "This is really valuable." And we we actually wrote uh, notes from each one, so we sort of had right. this sort of you know uh, uh, PDF documents from each of the webinars and the sort of the tips and the top strategies. And from that, we looked at these documents and thought, "Well, we should just quick quickly muddle this into a book." Right. You know, there's really there's really good content there, and we'll just make it twelve chapters. We'll, you know, we'll punch it out in six months' time. And there'll be this fabulous textbook on menopause, right. and of course, you know, four and a half years later, <laughs> and it's now forty-two chapters. Yeah. We realize that you know, we sort of like, wow, this is really, and part of the challenge, Lorena, and this, this, we sat there many times. First, we we would call it the War and Peace of menopause. Uh-huh. We sat yes. there thinking we are writing this, this, this thing that really felt like it had no ending. But also, part of the challenge is to try and draw the line as where does it where does menopause stop and it just be considered part of the aging process yeah you know, what, what is menopause really all about? Because menopause is a period of time that women go through from one transition in their life to another. Yeah. But yeah. then we sort of move into things like cognitive decline and Alzheimer's and even things like osteoporosis, which is often mixed in with menopause symptoms. Right. It's like, well, is that menopause or is that just part of getting old? Mm-hmm. And, this, you know, it's called um, is that, that concept of um, trying to disentangle the two because obviously ageing itself is inevitable and ageing is part of, again aging isn't a disease and aging yeah. shouldn't be seen as an illness aging is a part of else, life it's
0: a part of living aging, that's yeah. right and, and
1: and that as is menopause and so yeah. again this idea that menopause isn't a you know we shouldn't be you know we talk about etiology of a disease right and really that's sort of the cause and, and the reasons why a disease might t- might occur mm-hmm. and so you know you, can, you can't really talk about the etiology of menopause because it, it's a,
0: a period it started the moment that you became that and, you were born <laughs> You were
1: born, that's right. So, right. but we sort of, we sort of then do and and, and so again I, and i i've I've been part of many discussion forums where people debate things like, you know, things like menopause is natural. Therefore, it's not a disease and therefore we shouldn't treat it with any form of any form of treatment. It should be, you know, women should be left to their own
0: devices. And And menopause is natural. It's the dysfunctional components, the symptomatology that comes along with it that is often pathologized. And that's, I think that's the part that we don't take into account from a clinician or a patient perspective is that just like on the other end with, you know, menarche and your first period, there's nothing wrong. The the period part is not the pathology. It's the dysfunctional components, the dysfunctional menstruation. It's the dysfunctional, uh, the menstrual dysfunction that is the part that is, is the issue the period itself is not just like menopause itself is not the problem. It's the symptomatology and the dysfunctional components that create an issue.
1: Exactly, and, and one of one of the things I'll often say in that argument when people are saying things natural, it's like well, so is childbirth, right?
0: But we evolved <laughs> to right.
1: understand all the different components that we bring together. That if if women were left to give birth in the field, right. you know, that's, that we haven't been I mean, part of part of evolution is understanding this idea that we can really try and get the, the best out of you know, maximizing for women this experience right and um, so you know it's, it is it's really wonderful and, and I, I raise that childbirth as a good analogy yes. because i feel that, that that there's a lot of misinformation around childbirth and birthing mm-hmm. and i feel like the same misinformation occurs around menopause and yeah. that one, one of my i feel a personal agenda to recreate positive stories around both of these aspects. And in Chinese medicine, there's a wonderful thing called the gate of life theory. And that that menaki is one that... childbirth is another if if women choose to have children but and then and then menopause is another gate of life right so this idea of understanding this gate theory Mm -hmm. and how menopause can be a really positive experience for some women if they're under good good clinical care
0: yes and again we go back to that in engaged clinician and that therapeutic alliance that relationship being important to each of these gates because at each one of these times, it can be over-medicalized, over-instrumentation, um, and then over-pathologized. And each one of those gates, as we pass through, are going to be setting us up for that next gate. And how are we passing through each of those gates is going to determine pretty much our course of life throughout that entire life cycle. And then we get to menopause, and that's that last gate. And it's accumulation of how we pass through the other two gates. And I think, again, we don't look at it from day one from that perspective but each one is building and laying the foundation for the next
1: indeed it is it's such a wonderful opportunity for change there's wonderful yeah. uh, expert uh, dr julian scott who's a pediatric expert and he talks about menopause being an opportunity to throw out illnesses yeah. that a person might have had either from child childhood into adulthood. Yeah. Well, then, and then this is this this gate, this opportunity to you know the asthma and eczema and all these conditions, that in fact this is the time, this is sort of a window of time to really optimize health. Yeah. And so for some women, I've got, I've got this wonderful client of mine who's eighty, and she just talks about how. For her, the menopause was this incredibly liberating experience. Mm. And she said even her, she said she went through this sort of personality shift where she used to be angry and upset a lot of the time. And she just became this this sort of you know, the, the, a rising phoenix, which right. I think is such a wonderful image.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. You know, rising from the ashes, that's, that's a beautiful analogy. I love that. And so going back to the book, Menopause, A Comprehensive Guide for Practitioners, will be released in October in ebook form, if, I'm, if I correct me if I'm wrong. And this text is going to be geared toward practic- practitioners. So what is its overall focus? And talk to us about some of the key chapters that were specifically do- designed, not just for the treating of menopause, but how that's going to incorporate the integrative approach to care.
1: Indeed. Look, one of the exciting I mentioned it started off as these 12 modules and then it kept evolving. So it's now right. 42 chapters. We've got eight sections. And the, and the focus really was to upskill clinicians right. that I imagined, you know, a little bit like my own personal journey of going, I'm really curious. I've got these clients coming in. I'm not sure what I should be doing for, to help these people. So we, we really looked at trying to make it as practical as possible. And what I did is I, I tried to mirror my own experience in my practice, and that is that I when I have a client come in, I take a book off my shelf and I flick to the pages and I say, this is what I think is going on for you. And see, see here, these are the points that I'm using, and this is the channel, and this is the pathway, and this explains all your symptoms. And so I, I, you know, we designed a book to try and make it a very much a clinical resource so that, so that practitioners can use it as an education tool for their patients. And it's been interesting, Lorena, I was reading it through last night and trying to imagine what it would be like reading as a patient reading this book and, and having access to how clinicians think and having access to it's a little bit of a, a fast track or, you know, sort of um, it's sort of speed dating <laughs> a, Chinese, a degree in Chinese medicine. But we've, we've really tried to include in the book explanations as to why the different symptoms are taking place what the treatment approach is i mean naturally the book is not designed for people to be able to pick up and prescribe themselves herbs or stick in needles to themselves right but really what we wanted to do is make it very detailed for clinicians to understand the the thinking along coming to a diagnosis right but also using that to be able to say to their patients this is what we think is going this is what i think is going on for you i t- i talked to you earlier about the therapeutic alliance and that is the relationship between a patient and a practitioner there's another concept which underpins and all of uh, Chinese medicine particularly and that's called the therapeutic framework okay and what that is is when when's when you and I'm sure everybody listening today has had some experience where they've got all these weird symptoms right. and going to a doctor and saying you know I'm not really sleeping well and I've got a little bit of diarrhea and my you know my feet are hot or you know, right we nothing that feels connected all the things
0: that nothing are going feels on right
1: that's right and, and so you know you say something about a doctor and they'll say there's there, that's they're completely unrelated. Mm-hmm. That's nothing to do with anything. That or, or we can't find anything wrong with you. Right. That's another really good one. That unfortunately doctors say a lot. We can't find anything wrong with you. Therefore, mm-hmm. there must be nothing wrong, which is <laughs> right. you know, it, which is deeply frustrating and, and often really traumatic for people who are suffering. Right. One of the things is in, within the framework of traditional Chinese East Asian medicine, is there is a way of under, understanding it. There's there's always a system or a theory of being able to say these five symptoms fit perfectly into a pattern of disharmony yeah and that pattern of disharmony is that we would call that a therapeutic framework mm-hmm. of understanding the treatment because in order to treat a problem you have to understand what the problem is right so having a gp say something like well they're not related or we can't find anything wrong with you that that's a limiting first step yeah. because what that then says is therefore we can't help you i i don't yeah. have a treatment that's going to work for you one of the lovely things with Chinese medicine, it really is this incredible system uh, you know, of understanding how the body works and the interaction between the different organs and the, the time of year, the time of day, yeah. the person's mood, the person's uh, menstrual cycle. I mean, it's the most incredibly sophisticated sort of visualized sort of cogs and wheels all turning right, at once right. to understand and, and, and these maps that we have as well of you know being able to map the human body and, and all the different nuances as energy passes through it. So within that, that, that the therapeutic framework, understanding what's going on, in order to know how to then treat it, yeah, and that's what I think again that we this is where we excel in things like menstrual uh, it, menstrual problems and menopause symptoms, yeah, that that it's it, all of the symptoms you know I, that all have a uh, I guess sort of a, they form a, a big picture, yeah. And and I know I know GPs generally they say things like, You're only allowed to come with one problem at a time. Yes, (laughs) a lot of times. Don't bring Bring one. Don't bring me a shopping list. Right. Because we're only gonna have time to talk about
0: one. And barely enough time time to to talk about that one. Yeah. (laughs)
1: That's right. And, look, and to be perfectly honest, I, I, my years and years ago, I was working with GP organisations in Australia. And I really feel sorry for GPs because they are absolutely limited in what they can offer patients in time. And yes. one, one of the things I hear a lot is patients saying things like, well, I went to my doctor and all they did is try to prescribe me something.
0: Mm-hmm. I was like, well.
1: Well, That's sort of what doctors do. You know, yeah. it's a bit like going. You know, I went to a carpenter, and all they tried to do was hammer in with a nail. Right. So, yeah. Well, that's what they do. And electricians work with electricity, and plumbers with pipes. Right. So, therefore, choose your clinician carefully. Right. Don't don't be disappointed if a doctor's not giving you a diet plan, mm-hmm. because that's not their job. Yeah. So, you know, and this is again empowering women to make good choices. Not just what they're what they're choosing to do or take, but who they're getting information from. Right. And that's, that's, again, where I always feel that, that really clinicians and, and people, you know, again, your center where you've got this body, this, this incredible network to draw on. It's not just one person, right. but all of your, all your practitioners that all work together. That, that really is sort of the, the epitome of a, an incredibly um, comprehensive program.
0: Right. And I think that's, you've hit so many different nails and on the head, pardon the pun, as we talk about, you know, carpenters, but when i was primarily a western or a traditional medicine practitioner it was that i didn't feel like i had enough tools in my toolbox like i knew how to address things but that wasn't the arena where i could suggest certain things or take this or take that or you know oh you don't have to you know take this pharmaceutical medication because xyz will do the same thing without the side effects that wasn't something that i was readily able to do without thinking about what the consequences you know how are you going to you know put this in the chart and all these different aspects and it was sometimes a limiting factor because even with insurance sometimes you know those medications aren't necessarily covered and when there's something that you probably already have at your home that you're not even thinking about that can you know get the same result, that wasn't necessarily the thing that I should have been you know prescribing or recommending mm-hmm. and so you know having to play, you know do that dance was also s- oftentimes tiresome, okay. and realizing that I do have eighteen fifteen to eighteen minutes in during this whole interaction to actually have some influence on someone's life and there's only time to write a prescription and so when you talk about the tools yes there's only it's the system in general because they're we're breeding a system or continuing to feed into a system that is only based on one approach to care and there's no space and it's not necessarily the gp when we, we talk about gp we're talking about general practitioners but it's not necessarily the physician's fault. It's just the system that they're in and they have to continue to plug into to fit and being outside that system. Again, you don't have all the other benefits and so it's just, it's really broken and it's not necessarily a a healthcare system, but more of a disease management system. And when you're coming at it from different angles, you realize that your health, your wellness, and definitely not the healing component is not necessarily a priority. It's to keep the disease in a manageable situation, not necessarily to remove the disease component or to evolve past the disease itself. Um, So I think when you talk about those different things, again, the engaging clinician and being an engaged patient or client as well is so important because that's part of the partnership. That is the relationship. Um, So again, you've highlighted so many different differences, but one key difference between conventional medicine and TCM is that personalized tailored treatment approach. In your experience, how has this approach directly affected treatment outcomes?
1: It's it's funny you say that because it is ultimately the most critical factor yeah. uh, you know and it's being able to the other thing you, you know you just you just touched on and i think it was so poignant is also that the patient compliance right you know that there's there's there has to be this sort of agreement between the practitioner saying i'm going to give you this information and i'm going to i'm going to prescribe this particular treatment program for you right. but there has to be this level of the patient being ready to implement change yeah and that can that can for some people be a bit of a challenge you know because you know, the, it, changing lifestyles a really big thing. Having mm-hmm. to pick up exercise, where you might not have done it before. You know, all all these different. It's the doing yeah. of the of the treatment approach, and yeah. and there's again one of the things I love about. Chinese medicine that really empowers people you know it's all a whole body of knowledge it's a whole way of eating it's a way of breathing it's you know it's a way of sleeping so there's there's this there's this aspect of it it's giving patients the information they need to go home or go to work or drive or do the things that has to be done but that that really the best outcomes are achieved when people are super motivated they're on board and they're really compliant and you know, again, I think for some people that's con- that can be really challenging. Yeah, you know, it's, you have to, you have to be really ready to do the work. Yeah, and, that, and uh, readiness and it does is, take work.
0: Yeah, readiness is a lot of things. And you know one of the things that we don't talk about because people come in and they're so used to the, give me a pill, give me a this or give me a that, and then I'll be better, or that symptom will go away. But we still haven't addressed how why you had that symptom in the first place, and that symptom just didn't. Maybe you became aware of it yesterday but it's been in evolution probably for weeks, potentially years, and depending on what it is, decades whether you've been ignoring it or just it hasn't been you know brought to your attention and i think a lot of times you know people come in wanting to be fixed i say in air quotes but they're not ready for that healing aspect and that healing aspect is never going to come overnight because whatever disease process didn't happen overnight either and they're not really ready to give up the thing that made them sick and not necessarily a taking away, but giving up sloth in terms of like, OK, now you ne- instead of being a sloth, you have to engage your body in movement, not necessarily exercise, but you have to move differently. That's giving up sloth. And sometimes it's on the other end where, yeah, you got to give up popcorn because corn is not your friend. So it's on both sides of that equation of what are you are you willing to give up in order to. Be an active and engaged participant in your own healing process. So, uh, we rarely discuss the role of trauma in regards to an individual's menopausal symptoms and the overall menopause stage of the life cycle. So, how do you feel trauma affects the part of this part of the life cycle?
1: It's it's funny you ask because the. The theory we came up early, you know, that we talked about earlier, the gates of life theory, mm-hmm. that this 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 can be another opportunity again. It's sort of almost like an audit right. of someone's life, of going, okay, I'm I'm now, you know, forty seven, forty eight, fifty one, what you know, whatever the age of it, it sort of crescendos, right. but being able to look back and say this this is potentially sort of the midpoint, or to, you know, towards the the other side of the midpoint of my life, and saying what who am I, and you know, how did I come to be here, right. and who do I want to be moving forward through this process. And you know, because of your work in fertility medicine, that you you would understand more than anybody else how sex, uh, sexual trauma, uh, you know, ch- uh, childhood abuse, childhood physical trauma, violence yeah. trauma, psychological abuse, all of these things that that. Often will show up around fertility care, Mm -hmm. and again, if they're not well managed at that junction, at that particular gate, then they'll they'll show up again through through in the menopause process. And I say that as a, in a way, I say that as a really exciting opportunity for women to sort of face their demons and be able to look at, okay, this doesn't this doesn't have to define you of understanding that now's an opportunity to you know to get against to get some help for around that to identify what it is why that might be a driver
0: right right and how
1: that how that might be affecting health or happiness or again participating in a healthy sex life whether that's with a partner or you know newly single but there's all these different aspects of um you just just ultimately becoming a. a I, I love the idea of it being sort of a, a midlife audit oh, of what's yeah. going on and and, yeah. and and also a bit of a target setting of where where would you like to be right. given Given that this is now an opportunity to redefine the next part of your life, yeah. what does that look like? And it's you know for, for many people, and this is why I think menopause is such an interesting area s- socially to be exploring. Right. Is there's a lot of aspects of menopause that occur, occur with other events in life, other major events in life, yeah. like the raising of, of teenage children, mm-hmm. like caring for elderly parents who are sick and infirm. Right. or the or the grief, you know, bereavement, loss of a parent. Yeah. Um, divorce is a big one that we're seeing in the mid-40s. 45 seems to be around the average age of divorce. Right. You know, and that seems to be like, wow, that's perfectly tied with perimenopause. Uh-huh. So that's, you know, so major family relationship shifts. Um, it also, interestingly, and there's, there's sort of a whole other segue of study around, you know, women in their mid-40s, it seems to be career-wise a time that they're either – moving into more senior management mm. so it was creating a huge amount more professional stress yeah. or the opposite for some women is they've hit some form of glass ceiling yeah. and they're not being promoted they're not getting to the next level and that causing another whole element of frustration as well as maybe financial capping so you know we're, we're, there, there was a big big um, storm in the united kingdom a number of years ago around equal pay for men and women mm-hmm. and that really started to highlight in a lot of different professional groups the disparity right and so what we are seeing is these sort of financial struggles which occur around this time of life if it coincides with divorce or you know again other events that are taking place right so it's it's a really fascinating time yeah. and i think it's a really a complex time so your your question of trauma is it you know can be things that which have been brought from childhood or 20s or 30s yeah. into menopause or potentially things that are going on immediately but the other, probably the most poignant, and again this would resonate with your audience today, is that the women who have had fertility care mm. and have had problems conceiving and haven't gone on to conceive, then the menopause itself yeah. by virtue of being, de- by definition, the end of reproductive years, yeah. that can be unbelievably traumatic for some women.
0: Yeah. Yes, and I think we don't even, even as we move through those life cycles, We're not thinking about how, again, that gate of fertility, when that gate closes, how that woman is going to move, how that person is going to move into menopause, whether it be miscarriages or terminations or just all the different other social circumstances that have led up to that point, relationships. You talked about Mm -hmm. divorce and really, you know, the earlier on you mentioned like the grievance of, you know, the grieving of tolerance of, you know, how to, you know, respond to you know, their social activities and I think that's where TCM really shines in that there's always a correspondence, namely seasonal, um, in terms of looking at you know, spring and autumn and winter and fall, and or s- spring and summer, spring, summer, winter, and fall, and how grief is often associated with autumn and that mental element, you know, the leaves falling from the trees. And we see so many parallels with nature as we move through our own life cycles, if and when we pay attention. And you just talked about those complex aspects of menopause in terms of relating to these different shifts and these pivots that are often indirectly, but they're directly also associated with the loss of reproductive fertility. And so how do you talk to us about how the role of a practitioner and that importance of that therapeutic encounter and the shepherding of a woman through these these different aspects of the life cycle?
1: And I, I think you're right, and what, what's wonderful, and I'll just very quickly take your listeners on that journey sure. through what's called the five element life cycle. Sure. So it starts with the wood and this spring energy, and, and wood is very much a sort of a toddler, and they're incredibly <laughs> expansive and fiery nature. Right. And right. then I love it moves into the fire element, and this is our adolescents who are in love, and they're passionate, and they're deeply political, and they're... So the fire element itself comes with all these fiery, t- a fiery time in life. Yeah. because That sort of teens to late teens, and then we move into the earth, which is more into settling down mm-hmm. and into p- p- potentially having a family, being professionally more productive, and often, often more stationary. Right. So you know, the earthing as a, and then metal. And this is this this is the stage that we're talking about with today, Lorena. The the metal element as mm-hmm. being sort of more moving in, into the. You know, at the autumn of someone's life, yeah. and then the final one is water, and water being sort of towards the the very end of life, so it's, you know, yeah. that last stage of the aging process. And and in in the Chinese traditional East Asian framework, is that we continue to cycle through these throughout the year. Mm-hmm. We cycle through these throughout you know to a certain degree to, throughout the day, yeah. and then and then even on a more broader throughout throughout one's lifetime. Absolutely. And so you know, we we talk about that. Well, what I, I mentioned earlier that therapeutic framework. You know, again, I love that I can sit with a book and I show my clients this particular model of here's the elements and here we're up to and this is what we expect. So things like with the metal, the the graying of the hair, the drying of the skin, everything slowing down a little bit more and people being more reflective. And so, and what's also really lovely about this again, women who transition well through menopause, mm-hmm. they, and I love the metal because they become so solid. Yeah. There's this aspect of, of you know, women that do well become super powerful. Great. They become really authentic. They find their voice yeah. and they find that their true self outside of being a mother or being a carer or being a you know a, a wife or, or a, a partner to another person right so this idea of menopause being actually quite a wonderful time of shedding all of those earthing things and actually rising again into one's individuality and and I love it you know, you see these yeah. women that are just like oh f- i was gonna swear for no, no, you're allowed you're allowed go oh, ahead fuck it i'm you know <laughs> like, i can do what I, i've got to yeah. one of these women that just go i've I'm, i've got to a certain age i don't care what people think right. anymore and i'm like i love you i want to be just like you you're right you know these yeah. women they're so they're so themselves and they're and and this is you know we see now younger women in society and they're being pulled in all the different directions right. and how they have to look and feel and respond and social media and all sorts of influences and there's this There's this wonderful emergence through all of that of like, this is who I am, Mm -hmm. and this is where I'm going, and this is my purpose in life. And in Chinese medicine, there's this wonderful theory, it's called Jing, Mm -hmm. and Jing can be translated to essence. And, and right. jing, again, is what we see. you would work with a lot with your patients with their fertility is their jing and their essence and their ability to re, re, um, to conceive. Yeah. And what we're seeing, jing, women lose a lot of jing every time they have a menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. But jing, which is why women can be depleted, and you might look at something like anemia as a Western diagnosis of that right. jing depletion. And so one of the things that we sort of – there's a theory in Chinese medicine that women do become powerful – because yes. by not having a menstrual cycle every month, that all that jing is repurposed. Mm-hmm. All that essential goodness becomes part of their life force, and that's a really powerful force not to be reckoned with. Yeah. I and mean, you know, again, we're seeing our, our female politicians and our female leaders in society, and just you know, these incredibly inspirational women that are steadfast, right. and that, that's that that's they've managed to harness their jing and really, really move into this wonderful leadership role in our communities.
0: Yeah, I love how you have, you know, bringing this on, you know, ending on a high note, talking about this concept of power and walking into using utilizing menopause to rediscover and walk into that female expression of power. And I think oftentimes societally, women's sexual power is often most valued or the most valued in her youth and her younger ages. And as women get older and this sexual power kind of diminishes or wanes based on societal norms, um, she has a tendency to become invisible or, you know, as she loses her youth and loses her sexual prowess and her sexual power, she can't no longer use that as a form of currency. How do you see that playing out clinically as well as socially?
1: What I love, you know, today's podcast started with your introduction about Chinese medicine being the complementary forces of qi and yin and yang. Yeah, and so you know, when we look at yin, we look at the moon, we look at this this sort of very nourishing, cooling energy. And when you look at yang energy, it's this vibrancy, it's the sunshine, it's radiance. Yeah, and so and and qi being the concept of energy, which we could directly translate into some form of power as well. Mm-hmm. And so one one of the things that I I look at as that women at the early part of their life are very much in this yin aspect of their life and, and you're just sort of um trying to example you know hold families together and to move right. in society in a way that they're included one of the lovely things again is what we're sort of seeing as this yin might sort of start to move is women become much more in their young energy in this yeah. sort of hot you know, powerful you know, it really is. I mean, menopause really is a hot condition, mm-hmm. and, I, and I, I sort of do see that that is this rising young energy. Right. So, you know, the your question about power in society is one of the things I feel strongly is that that women women have power in different ways to men. Is that you know, men? I think you know. I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts where men are encouraged to become leaders and become very vocal and sort of pivot themselves at the at the top of the of, you know top of the empire, so to speak. Whereas one of the things that women do really well is they become, they're very inclusive in yeah. the way they operate into network into this sort of tribal way of working together. And it's that togetherness that if I take care of you, that we will all be taken care of. Right. And one of the lovely things I'd like to finish on is this concept of evolutionary biology called the grandmother hypothesis yeah and i love this the grandmother hypothesis is a a theory that's kicking around with evolutionary biologists Mm -hmm. who are currently studying the only other males that go through menopause Mm -hmm. and that happens to be whales Mm -hmm. so humans And whales, a certain species. So there's the the single-fin pilot whale and the killer whale in particular, the two others. So the only other mammals that go through menopause. So we sort of – it's this extraordinary scientific anomaly Mm -hmm. that we as humans are going through this particular process in our life. For most other animals – that they that the, the basically end of life occurs very shortly after the end of the re- reproductive years. Right. We're talking within, sometimes within twelve months. Yeah. So effectively, after the reproductive years, that is the end of life for most animals. Mm-hmm. Whereas as humans, and what we're seeing obviously with the uh, with our aging process, being uh, women are living for a lot longer, right. is that, that menopause are occurring at fifty and the end of life around eighty five is we're really living a significant number of years past about, past our reproductive years. Right. So what scientists have been doing is studying whales and working out what would be the evolutionary benefit of that. And the grandmother hypothesis is that as a leader in a tribal community like whales and humans, we women are able to better serve the community by not reproducing and going on to teach other other species yeah. how to fish mm-hmm. and how to survive. And, and I really I- love that idea. I love that idea that we have we've evolved into being that that women in particular have evolved into being the matriarchs and the leaders in, in communities for, for the survival of the entire community. Right. So I think it's a really wonderful way of that the women's power is actually their knowledge is their actual you know at, that their ability to lead and to help support the entire generations that rather rather than continue to have offspring themselves which become competition with their their existing offspring or their grand offspring Mm -hmm. that women are pre-programmed to stop reproducing so that they become tribal leaders
0: right yeah that's that's beautiful and i think even as we talk about you know the actual grandmother we have a picture up in in one of our treatment spaces where there is you can see a mom and you can see that she's pregnant and you can see her her baby the you know the fetus inside her and the one thing that we talk about is we initially when you look at it you see mom and baby but as we've you know grown and we look we see grandma as the mom we see daughter as the you know the fetus but inside that fetus is also the eggs of the grandchild and really being able to see all three of those components in one picture speaks to again all of those different life uh, gates of life those life cycles all encapsulated because your grandmother you are in your grandmother with we were each in our grandmother before we even knew it because those eggs that were in your mom were in her body you know as she's growing And so I just think that's such a, you know, a powerful image, but also one of those, you know, not just the picture itself, but how and what that translates into as the life cycles evolve and even as we evolve over generations and what that means for our own, you know, health, wellness and healing. And so I think um, besides your upcoming book, I think we're coming to the end. Are there any additional resources you recommend for those wanting to delve more into the treatment of menopause from an integrative whole person perspective?
1: Well, well, this is the point which I'd encourage anybody listening today to reach out and find their local acupuncturist or Chinese herbalist or nutritionist, dietitian. You know, really sort of shop around and find a good match of a good clinician that's going to match your framework, right. but also what you're interested in. Because I would say that the best resources we have in our communities are the clinicians that are already doing this care.
0: Okay. So
1: it's really, you know, and, and again, it's just so wonderful because that, that relationship, as we mentioned right back at the beginning, that relationship the therapeutic framework for understanding what's going on and then of course a a tailored treatment plan really is the best way to get the most out of this you know i caution anybody looking on the internet saying you know what food should i be eating or what Mm -hmm. you know what should i be doing because again that that goes back to that different model it's not the food it's the person so therefore that's that's where a clinician can come in and your use of the word shepherding somebody into the right making sure that they've ended up in the right sort of treatment program rather than you know, rather rather than just pull, pulling odch-bodch bits and pieces together,
0: right. But
1: having having a, a just just having a map, having a really good map to be able to navigate this new terrain.
0: Wonderful. And last but not least, any parting words of wisdom for our listeners?
1: I I, I would really encourage anyone to start now. Mm-hmm. So again, regardless of whatever age you're at, it's the you know, when, I, when I say start now, it's, for, me, for me the biggest thing was actually exercise. I I was really shocked by how exercise. Unanimously was the thing which came as the number one for preventing all sorts of illnesses. Right. So you know, and and one of the things I would always say to women is to find something that you love and do lots of it. Yes. And so <laughs> exercise doesn't have to be sort of putting on lycra and going to a gym class and right. rolling a mat out. It doesn't have to be, you know, it doesn't have to be a formal you know gym membership. It, right. it, it really can be. It can be dancing. You know, taking a yes. dog for a walk, swimming, whatever it is. But you know, really finding movement. it was probably the most striking result of the all the research that I've done Mm. is how we are we are programmed to be moving and, and this lovely expression i came across motion is lotion yes that the that where illness occurs is when we're stationary for too long right. and when we sit, we become sedentary and you're you know but you you raise that wonderful point about being a sloth <laughs> you know it's having to having to sort of unsloth yourself yeah um you know interesting for some women it's the opposite it's actually you know, if you're doing too much it's having to settle down yeah. like i spend I, I seem to spend my entire working life telling people that they should be doing more movement or less of something yes uh-huh. yeah. Is it more of this or less of that well I think that's a so dichotomy be,
0: it's either excess or deficiency and we have and a hard young. time finding that balance that middle ground because we're either excessively doing something and neglecting something else or on the other end of the spectrum completely neglecting something when we should be engaging more in something else and finding that balance all throughout our lives all throughout our days all throughout you know our years it's you know it's challenging especially because we're getting so many external you know stimuli you know external stimuli as a part of our daily life and you know the messaging like you mentioned are so inconsistent from you know the, the morning to the afternoon you know they're different recommendations so I think it's really like you said trying to find and really working and being intentional about finding that engaged clinician who is going to treat you as an individual and not just the compilation of symptoms but really looking at you as an individual who has symptoms and how that you know that treatment framework is going to best address those constellation of symptoms yeah it's been a pleasure kath you've been wonderful and i just i this was just such a blessing for me just reiterating again that there practitioners who are doing the work who understand and are really you know advocating and leading the charge in the synergy of integrative reproductive medicine and women's health all across the life cycle so thank you so much
1: and thank you to Dr. Lorena White I really it's, it's wonderful that the Epdemonia Center can sort of represent the best practice in this sort of medicine and again 25 years ago when I first started I you know, to imagine that centers like yours existed would be just incredible so thank you again for the work that you do
0: thank you so much thanks for joining Women's Health Wisdom and Wine we really hope you enjoyed our conversation today think about one gem you can take away from this episode and apply it to your own life Also, remember to follow us, review us and give us five stars till we meet again. Remember, nourish your flourish.